Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm Faye. And I'm James. So, Faye, how has your week been this week? Well, quite frankly, I'm just glad to have got through it. Um, I got a hideous cold and then I got bronchitis. Um, so, I don't know if you can hear, I've got a little bit of a squeaky voice, um, which makes a novel change. You were all uh, full of beans when I saw you at the beginning of the week. So things went downhill from there, did they? Hey, I'm always full of beans, even if I'm feeling a little bit strange. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what about you? Yeah, my week has been kind of taken up by the Trinity Bradfield Prize. So the applications closed on Tuesday, which was a midnight Halloween, which I thought was a nice touch. Nice. Really pleased with the response again. So uh slightly up on last year i think we had 56 entries in the end so uh yeah really pleased with that covering you know all the kind of cambridge style tech ideas you'd expect so software ideas health tech ideas biotech um lots of great stuff in there next stages are our workshops and then shortlisting ahead of the final in january that's great and so quite a bit of shortlisting to do again then yeah, a lot to work through, but that's that's a good problem to have. And um, yeah, just some really positive conversations with various tech meetup community leaders who are looking to restart their in-person events. So that's really positive. And um, some good conversations with our friends over at Barclays Eagle Labs. That's great. Nice to hear lots of things going on rather than me just burying my head in the sand. <laughs> no, I'm glad you made it for the recording. Ah, thanks. So um, I don't think anyone will have missed the AI Summit taking part at Bletchley Park this week. I did reach out to Matt Goodin and he has responded. So we'll be sharing some of his thoughts and takeaways on the social media channels. Remember, Matt was from Tech Monitor. And so other news, you know, these things happen. You get a big AI summit and all the global leaders come to them and people then start announcing other initiatives. So with that in mind, we have new news of a collaboration that's just been announced that will shape the future of generative AI potential. And actually, it's trying to really outweigh a lot of the narrative that happened at Bletchley Park. So, you know, there was a lot of talk about threats and opportunities and is it the end of mankind, humankind, sorry. You know, and I think that the idea of this collaboration is that they're going to be much more positive about it. So that should be interesting to to watch. Yeah, well, before we get into the detail of that, where was the invite for the podcast? I was expecting us, you know, to be covering the AI summit. Oh, no, no, no. I got it. But I just said we were too busy. (laughs) Okay, I didn't. It's a joke. Obviously, I didn't. Next time, James. Have you been to Bletchley Park before? It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I have. It's great. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Because it never really got the protection it needed until very recently. So it's kind of gone from being this country house in the middle of nowhere to be surrounded by an industrial estate. It's kind of a strange place to visit. But um, yeah, so as you mentioned, um, Arm are working with a number of leading US technology companies, including AMD, Intel, uh, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA and Qualcomm to create the foundational frameworks, technologies and specifications that are required for more than 15 million ARM developers to deliver the next generation of AI experiences across every corner of computing. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think it's a conversation that's definitely carrying on. I know we we talk about it an awful lot on the podcast, don't we? So let, let's see what happens um, with all these different collaborations. Other news, Cambridge Angels have just led a $5 million pre-seed round in a company called Zero Risk, a startup based in Boston, Massachusetts. Business Weekly have told us that they think it's the first time Cambridge Angels has actually been the lead investor in a US company's funding round. Um, Pete Hutton, former arm president of Product Groups, and Rajat Malhotra of Ren Capital co-steered the deal on behalf of Cambridge Angels with participation from numerous private investors, including Herman Hauser. Mm, nice. And uh, as one award window closes, another one opens. The uh, The Business Weekly Awards for 23-24 has officially launched this week. As you may recall from when we spoke with Tony, the awards launched back in 1990. And entries are open to anyone across the six counties of the east of England, which is Cambridgeshire, Suffolk, Norfolk, Bedfordshire, Essex and Hertfordshire. Um, so, yeah, delve back into episode 54 if you want to get uh, the rundown of some of the history of the awards and this year's winners. And uh, more information can be found on the Business Weekly website. Great. And the final news story this week is a pre-series A funding round announcement from New Quantum, which happened at the end of the week. They've raised £7 million to accelerate their mission to build the entanglement fabric essential to scale quantum computers. A whole host of people were involved here. So it was led by Amadeus Capital Partners, Expeditions Fund and IQ Capital with increased commitment from seed investors, RN Capital, Seraphim Capital, the University of Cambridge and Martlet. Some new investors joining the round include Presidio Ventures, the National Security Strategic Investment Fund and Deep Tech Labs. So great for new quantum moving forward there. Okay, so that's this week's news. So on to the conversation. And this episode, I'm really pleased with um, because it's something that we committed to do a while ago. This is our Wealth Gap episode where we explore uh, some of the challenges that uh, the City of Cambridge finds itself trying to wrestle with. And the inspiration for this very much came from our live recording we did uh, with the audience at uh, Cambridge Tech Week. And the kind of issues have come up a number of times in, in previous episodes, conversations like the one with Tim Minshall and David Gill uh, and uh, Innovate Cambridge with uh, Tabitha and Dermot. So um, I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's about getting that balance, isn't it? We very rightly are celebrating the, the real growth potential that the tech community provides. But there is this consensus that we've got to do something to solve the issue of inequality in this this dedicated episode so let's get started so today we have a panel episode which we always enjoy but that means there's lots of people around the table so let's go around maybe in order rachel if we start with you could you just give us a, a short introduction and uh, tell us who you are and what organization you work for that would be really helpful 
Brilliant. Thank you. Really great to be here with you all today. So yeah, hi, I'm Rachel Hales. I am the founder of Get Synergized, um, which is a business that sparks connections and ignites change. And I guess uh, you could call me the matchmaker, which doesn't mean it's a de- I'm due dating. I don't do dating, um, <laughs> just in case you're worrying. But I do bring together the business and uh, non-profit sector to drive meaningful and social change. And I do that through three, three ways. Um, I work and do consultancy with businesses. So I help them really unlock the social um, factor of ESG within their business goals to really look at how they can be more socially responsible. So I have a three-step strategy that I do with businesses. I train nonprofits on how to build relationships with their business community. And then the third thing I do is I do networking events, which I bring the two sectors together so they can collaborate and look at ways that they can work together, um, all based around synergy and relationships, really, rather than tick boxes. And they're great events. I've been to a fair few of them. And, they, you know, you really do leave quite energised and a, a little better informed than you probably arrived. Yeah. And I think um, when when purpose is at the heart of it and actually people want to do good uh, and people want to make a difference, there's like any kind of other agenda is kind of put aside. It's like, actually, how can we collaborate to really improve lives? And I think when that's at the centre, it just has a little bit of a different vibe than, say, perhaps going there to network to get business. Yeah. Though, of course, there is obviously benefits of that as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let's come on to that in a little while as well. So, Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Sarah Crick. Um, I lead a small local charity right on the doorstep of the Science Park. We operate just in CB4 um, and we support families to raise happy, healthy and independent kids. We operate on the basis that parenting is uh, raising a family is really tough, especially if you've got other challenges going on in your life. And we focus typically on those experiencing challenges, to promote and enable positive, confident parenting and cooperative relationships with schools. In reality, this means intensive one-to-one family work over the long term in people's homes, and it's complemented by a range of outreach activities. Excellent. Thank you. And Steve? Hi. Hello, everyone. Lovely to be here and have this conversation. Uh, My name's Steve Thompson. I'm the CEO of Form the Future. We're an organisation that works with young people primarily in schools to link them with their future careers. So we do a lot of work with employers and all the schools across Cambridge and Cambridgeshire, either through running in-school workshops and careers programmes, through to running uh, out-of-school activities such as project days in businesses, work experience, summer internships, those kind of things. But we're really here to make an impact on young people's lives and show them the opportunities that are available to them as they migrate away from education and into work. Thank you, everyone. So let's start with a little bit of context and just frame the size of the issue. So really just trying to get your perspectives. I think everyone is very cognizant of the fact that inequality in Cambridge is higher than the national average. So from your perspectives, can you help the listeners understand what the size of the problem is that we're dealing with? To say it's higher than the national average is a little bit of an understatement because... um... Centre for Cities in 2017 and 18 named us as the highest in terms of inequality. That's the real reality. And that affects various things. Um, For us, things like life expectancy. So if you leave Newnham and get on a bus to King's Hedges, just outside the borders of the Science Park, um, you lose 12 years of your life expectancy, which is pretty shocking, I think. Shocking for a city like Cambridge and... uh, A lot of people are just unaware of that situation. We rank fifth in the country for uh, youth social mobility. 
And only 43% of children on free school meals get their English and maths. So that's the impact that uh, inequality has in Cambridge. That's English shopping. and maths GCSE? Yeah. Okay. It's just surprising, isn't it, when you think about the opportunities and the wealth and the universities and the colleges and the great tech sector, business sector that's absolutely thriving. And yet the reality is there's a side of the city that is really, really struggling. And I think my reason for setting up my business was I've worked over 25 years with children, young people and families directly in our community of Cambridge. And I've seen the poverty. I've seen the challenges that they face. And I just think we've got to do better. And uh, I think the work that they're doing at Red Hen is really trying to improve the outcomes and the same with Form the Future for those in our communities that are just having a bit more challenge and lacking the opportunities to thrive, really. There's a lot of evidence that, that suggests that particularly Greater Cambridge has one of the, the largest growth potentials in terms of opportunity. And we know from work around trying to create social value, for example, that you know just adding one science A-level to your kind of like your career, that's a that's a net gain of a, of an extra thousand pounds a year on your salary, which also then has a contribution to the local economy. And obviously, you know, all ships start to rise then. So there's a lot of work to do, I think, between both the emerging knowledge intensive businesses that are coming through, and then the links back into actually the local schools, the local communities to make sure that that opportunity is well understood and then create the pathways and the links for that mobility to happen. Otherwise, we're just going to end up with a situation whereby, you know, the science parks are just going to become these enclosed spaces, and then you, you know, you hop over a dual carriageway, and then you see these great areas of child poverty. Those gaps need to be bridged. Otherwise, you know, they may as well be the Atlantic. I think that's a good segue to maybe getting some examples of what you guys are seeing on the front lines. I know, Sarah, you've said you've got a number of stories of, of people that you work with. Um, maybe you could share some of those to, to bring some of these challenges to life for the for the uh, listeners. Yeah, I mean, our, <laughs> I want to say our top three. Our, the top three issues are um, poverty, mental health and domestic abuse. And the poverty and the mental health, they kind of collide one creates the other, the other creates the other, and 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 it's a kind of toxic, toxic situation. It means there's a lack of resource in the families. So during COVID, there were you know, people worrying about families that didn't have computers. We had families that didn't have pens and paper. This is the level, the reality. It means a lack of choice. People don't have a choice. Just choice is just eradicated from your life when you are living in poverty. There's there's a lack of opportunity. And I think it's the lack of hope. That's the thing that you see the most, that lack of belief. And we see we see two types. We see, see the intergenerational trauma-based, uh, you know, years after years of, of families being caught in this cycle. And our aim is we're kind of the the bit before Form the Future in that we focus on primary school. So if you can get the kids in primary school and happy and learning, there is a chance that education can break you out of that cycle. And we see examples of that all the time. We've just employed a lady who we supported 15 years ago. Her son 
We worked with her son at primary school to help with his diagnosis of autism and he's now just got a first class honours degree from Coventry, just about to start his master's. So those examples, they exist. So you've got that that element. You've also got, going back to the um, poverty side, you've got families, because of the unaffordability of living in Cambridge, you've got families that are on a bit of a knife edge. So they're okay as long as something doesn't go wrong. And mm. They have a little bit of illness, poor mental health or poor physical health or a relationship breakdown. And there's no cushion if you live in Cambridge. The cost of living in Cambridge is is scary. And one, one small thing and you're, you've fallen off. So, for example, uh, shelter, um, say there's 1,823 people homeless in Cambridgeshire on any one night. Um, 45% of those are children. And 52% of the reasons for being homeless is down to family breakdown. So what we do is really important in terms of getting in early to families that are going through challenges. Yeah, well, I, I concur with a lot of that. We are on a programme with Cambridge Enterprise called Cambridge Unlocked which is a, a programme for those young people who have real barriers to work experience. So they, they can't even do the year 10, year 11 work experience week because they can't get to work. They can't afford the transport even to take out that work experience opportunity. So we, we run this programme with, it's in its second year now, it's working with about a dozen employers, mainly in the tech space, and they pay the student for that week of work. And if you look around the country, and we've got a number of corporate partners that we're working with now that recognise that if you want to generate true social value and social mobility and provide those opportunities for young people who do have barriers, paying them is actually one of the key things that you can do, whether it be by simply by funding a train fare, a taxi fare, a bus fare, to enable that young person to actually participate in doing work, or actually, quite frankly, just paying them for a week's, week of work. Yeah. Um, you'll get so much more value from the individual as a consequence. And the Cambridge Unlocked program this year, um, uh, one young person was offered a job as a consequence of that week. Um, would ne never even knew that those opportunities existed within some of those, those tech startup environments um, and got offered a job as a consequence. And that, for us, that's real impact. That's where you can make a real difference. And so when we talk about families where, that, that literally are living month by month by month in terms of the ability to just live, I think it's up to employers to actually look at that seriously and think, well, if I am going to offer work experience opportunities to young people, the least I could do is pay them for their work. Yeah. And I think that's a really important step forward. And I think we've seen that in the in the undergraduate space now where, you know, there used to be the internship that you would do over the summer for free. And that's gradually over time has become unacceptable. Yeah. Um, and I think we're now starting to see that drift into the post-16 space, whereby employers, you know, have to engage in a in a much more socially conscious way with young people. So so a similar question to both Sarah and Steve. Sarah, how are how are those families that need intervention flag to you you know what what's the process of how they get onto your radar and then a similar question to steve how are the young people selected for the cambridge unlock program uh so our main source of families is through our uh, partnerships with primary schools so we work with primary schools in north cambridge for 25 years teachers tas playground staff they see children more than anybody else. Mm. You know, doctors don't spot problems because they see them once in a while. 
it's school staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how, you know, something just doesn't seem right. Or, or sometimes it's really obvious, but sometimes it's quite subtle. And that's where we come into contact with most families. And most recently, we've now started a partnership with um, 100 Houses, social housing. So the housing officers, um, when they, uh, they are now able to refer families who are in need to us as well. Okay. So we, we take the programme into schools. We actively promote the opportunities to, to all young people. We, we take an inclusive approach to start with, that there are opportunities for everyone. And then we work with the careers leads in schools and some of the teaching staff, some of the principals and head teachers to actually present these unique opportunities in a very bespoke manner to, to the school and say, okay, do you have a, a student that maybe is on free school meals or maybe there are some challenges at home, uh, some neurodiversity issues, those kind of things that we, we say, okay, if they have an interest in a certain subjects, then maybe this might be an opportunity for them to explore. Or perhaps, you know, the careers lead will know which students missed on the on the year 11 work experience, for example, and be able to pinpoint those and offer them that opportunity. So there is a, there is a bit of it depends. Yeah. But, but what Formula Future does is actively take those opportunities into schools and actively promote them through, you know, lunchtime workshops and various other things that we do um, so that students don't, don't, well, one, they find out about these things, but two, they, they, they can have a route through the careers lead or through a teacher to be able to apply um, and don't have to go through some big open kind of application process that, um, that may be a barrier in itself. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think tackling those, you've got to be inclusive, is, is so important. And I'm just thinking about the school system in itself. You know, your organisations exist to provide additional support and is that because schools are so busy schooling that they don't have you know teaching that they don't have the ability to do that and hence why organizations like yours are needed well that's why we were originally set up Um, we had three head teachers who were struggling with the amount of um, parents that were coming through their door seeking help Um, so yeah fundamentally it's true I mean I think the schools we work with they do an amazing job within the constraints of a really, really tough funding environment. Um, and they are overwhelmed with the issue. We work with schools where more than 50, and they're not, it's not across the uh, mm-hmm. dual carriageway, it's this side of the dual carriageway, and more than 50% of the children in that class are living in poverty. Yeah. Literally, you could walk there now. I could take you there five, ten minutes away. Um, we've got schools where you know they've built their after school provision with a washing machine because some families can't afford to put the washing machine on, can't afford to, I mean, if you ever buyed, bought uh, washing powder, you know how expensive it is. And when you're choosing whether to buy washing powder or feed your kids, the kids need feeding first and that child comes to school with dirty clothes and very rapidly they get labelled as the smelly one. And we all probably can remember the smelly one at school when we were a child because I could name the person in my primary school that was the smelly one. And that is that stays with the family and that stays with that child all the way through and impacts them greatly. So I would say uh, the primary schools we work with do their best, but they are on their knees. They're absolutely on their knees. The help isn't out there. Um, the statutory services, the, the mental health um, support isn't there. The diagnosis support for neurodiversity isn't there. Uh, they are on their knees. So that's why they work with us. 
schools, it's 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 difficult for for careers provision um, and careers guidance provision. It forms tends to form part of PHSE education. Yet we know that employers are are desperate for for young people to apply for jobs and have high levels of employability skills. Um, whether that's the ability to conduct themselves well in an interview, whether that be um, being able to make an application online and do that well, that all these skills need to be developed as well as you know exploring all the opportunities that there are. So we do a lot of work to to demonstrate those opportunities by bringing employers into schools and the ambassadors of employers to do that. And it doesn't matter which school it is, we take that inclusive approach. But then giving young people that assertiveness to then apply for jobs and seek out work experiences and look for summer internships, as well as maybe get a part-time job or you know do, do something like that, tends to be reliant on the individual. You know, although some teachers are appointed careers leads, it's kind of secondary to their main job of teaching. And we know what the pressure is for schools to perform in all the key stages and also for Ofsted. And in careers provision, we have a we have something called the Gatsby benchmarks, which are eight benchmarks which a school should provide in terms of linking young people to their future, you know, career opportunities. But it's it's secondary to Ofsted. You know, it f- forms a very small part of of what a school is obliged to do from a statutory perspective. Now that is changing. So, for example, the law recently changed earlier this year that actually throughout a young person's secondary school career, there must be at least four opportunities for meaningful engagement with with some form of tertiary provision, whether that be through an employer, through an apprenticeship, or through a college, or whatever it might be. So things are kind of changing, but there's no statutory obligation for a school to provide any form of careers guidance. It relies on organisations like Form the Future who have filled that gap. And we do have support from big grant-funded opportunities from, from regional and, and local government, but, but we are filling that gap. And we are making sure that we, we try and cover as many students as we can. But we're only probably covering maybe a quarter to nearly a third of all students in, in, in your young people at school in Cambridgeshire. You know, mm. so there's still a massive, massive amount of work to do. And I guess thinking about social mobility, we're wanting people to to, to move up the, the the chain, as it were. And then we're working with families where generationally they haven't worked because that's the culture of their, you know, family sort of history. We've then got situations where young people struggle with literacy and numeracy and filling out forms and applying. And actually, it just shows how important it is for the services like Form the Future to come in and provide that because otherwise these young people who are some of the most deprived within the city are struggling to even access that, aren't they? Because we're talking about aspirations, right? So there's a lot of services out there trying to raise the aspirations of young people, but I don't think it's also just about moving them into STEM careers, but also there's so many entrepreneurs within Cambridge, there's so many creative industries, and the education system is shoehorning people into academia, and particularly in Cambridge, where we're not actually looking at the individual and looking at how they gifted, what are their skills. Think about all of us who started our own businesses, you know, 
in the you know myself and um Faye you know there's young people out there that we need to expose them to a variety of opportunities and that's why businesses need to take responsibility for engaging in that conversation to raise the social mobility within the city because you can't do it alone neither can the schools mm. it's a collaborative effort isn't it most yes, definitely but but you i think we are starting to see some change there's definitely more investment going on to creating more enterprise activities in schools it's not a universal offer yet, but but there are organisations wanting to do that. So we just formed a partnership with a consultancy firm who want to start doing those kind of activities in schools. They're going to start small, but they also then offer a summer programme for anyone who's genuinely interested to come and explore other things. We've got organisations like Abcam who now say, okay, what are all the other opportunities at AppCamp? So not just for the scientists and for people working in the labs and the tech spaces, but actually where are our future finance people coming from? Our HR people, our administrators, our legal team, our facilities managers, because you can have all this wet lab space being built in, in Cambridge, but you're going to need facilities managers to run those where is that population of, of future employees coming from? How are you going to build these things? Because we've got, you know, there's people going into the construction sector, people being carpenters, people being plumbers. I mean, that's it's an interesting huge one. Huge shortage. There's, there's a residential homes developer that now has on site, whenever it's building over a certain level of homes, will put in an education centre to actually draw local people into apprenticeships and training, et cetera, for those. So they're actually, whilst they're building the properties, actually drawing in the young people into learning those trades and, le- and getting onto those career steps. So I think it is changing. I think that comes from the S in the ESG. Yeah, and um, I'm seeing more businesses now looking to recruit people from disadvantaged backgrounds actually as part of their recruitment process and thinking how are we making our legal firms, our accountancy firms much more accessible to people to feel that they can actually do that career. Or people like the Howard Group. Yeah, brilliant. Um, with their in. Future In, yeah, which brilliant. is the, the programme of bringing in Absolutely. Absolutely. TTP have this this wonderful tool that they use in in their recruitment, which is a contextual recruitment tool. And what it does is it looks at your qualifications and it puts them in context of where you grew up and the school you went to. So rather than just look for all the A-star students and recruiting those, they will look at those students with Bs and Cs and look to see, well, what was the school that you actually got that B in? Because if if the vast majority of people at that school can't even get anywhere near a D grade, for you to get a B has a much higher value than for someone who came from an A-star school and everyone gets an A-star. And that shows something about that personality. So these recruitment tools are really useful for helping to pinpoint those elements of social mobility. Supercomputing is becoming an essential tool of life sciences and pharmaceutical research. And increasingly, computing hardware is moving off-premise and into industrial-scale data centre facilities or the cloud. Operating award-winning data centres close to Cambridge, KO Data is proud to host Cambridge One, the UK's most powerful supercomputer, accelerating health research that spans medical imaging, genomics and drug discovery. With computing power and space available immediately and excellent connectivity to Cambridge's research parks and the cloud, KO Data is ideally placed to support advanced computing organisations of all shapes and sizes. 
get in touch today at kodata.com slash contact. We've started to work with Alex and Sam at uh, Ignite to Inspire. What really interests me there is the fact that they're using entrepreneurship as a hook. Because, you know, working with those young people that are maybe in danger of falling out of mainstream provision, they're probably unlikely to be academically successful in the traditional sense of getting qualifications. But, you know, obviously we're lucky to work with tech startups on a daily basis. And really there's no barriers just starting your own business. It doesn't obviously have to be tech. It could be anything. But, you know, to your point, Rachel, about corporates looking to hire people from challenging backgrounds, the the system in general though is very much set up to paper sift people out of processes because obviously there's so many people looking for work you're going to be sifting through on degrees and qualifications and experience it's so hard for kids that don't have the paper to get through that process um which is why i think there's something really interesting to tap into from a go create your own job go create your own yep. company don't you don't need Absolutely. to go and get a job i think in general there's a problem in cambridge in that we've got a hollowed out economy so you're either earning lots of money and doing really well in a tech job in a farmer job in the university or you're on zero hours contracts struggling Mm -hmm. and it's the same with the housing you know it's not going to be very long now until in order to live within the city you've either got to be a millionaire to buy a house or live in social housing that whole middle piece which will include the entrepreneurs the builders the jobs well the jobs that will that were out on the streets during covid the people that were emptying your bins teaching your kids um nursing you in 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 hospital those people make the city work. If those people can't live in the city, the city will stop working because yeah. someone's got to get you to your billion pound job or yeah. your et cetera. Well, that's a, that's a good segue, I think, into the next topic, which is I think the genesis of this conversation was from our live panel with, that we did at Tech Week where this you know subject came up as a major issue and we kind of took that action to go away and bring this conversation together. So obviously we talk about Cambridge Tech on a weekly basis on the podcast. So we'd love to get your opinion on the tech sector in Cambridge, because clearly it's been a contributor to the gap, you know, very highly paid um, and highly skilled jobs, which is pushing wage inflation and house pricing and everything else. So what's your opinion, both good and bad, on the role of the tech sector in Cambridge? Maybe, Rachel, we start with you as you do so much work with, well, any sides of organisation. I think it's great. I think it's great that we're bringing um, so many opportunities to the city. Fabulous. I don't particularly have a a problem with that. What What I struggle with is when businesses are choosing to come to Cambridge and to grow their work here or start here, they're not really perhaps taking in the wider ecosystem of where their employees maybe live or work. And they're not really thinking about the responsibility and the part that they can play in the city. And and my role as a consultant is really helping every business within Cambridgeshire, but I work across the UK, to really think if we're going to come here and prosper, how can we also purposefully give back to the communities that serve us and that we live and work and that employees live and work. And we know that for businesses that address their social responsibility, they differentiate themselves from their competitors, uh, they attract talent, you know, it's good for business. But actually, it should be ingrained in the fabric of a 
business in the way that they do business responsibly. And I guess my challenge to the tech sector is where are they giving back to the community? If they are bringing wealth and they're prosper- they're being prosperous, brilliant. Um, but also there's another side of how can you actually balance that as well? So that would be my thoughts really on that. Yeah, and I have one example where a, a tech company came into Cambridge and they took out a large sponsorship of one of our sports clubs. And that's great. You know, they choose to do that. It's about raising their profile. So I had a conversation with them about, and what are you actually doing to support that community? And it was like nothing. Mm-hmm. So you're going, well, why, why are you spending the money? Because I can guarantee when it comes to renewing it, you won't because you haven't actually integrated in, into, into that community in itself. And their answer was, well, we might start putting some adverts on the buzz, buzz, have I gone northern then? Buzz, on, the, buzz. on the buzz boards, and then people will know more about us. And I'm like, oh, you, again, that's you're just doing a route to a community. You're yeah. not engaging with the community. It's not authentic. Yeah. It's not genuinely Absolutely. embedded within the DNA and the culture. And those businesses that are thinking more purposefully are making it more authentically embedded within the business goals of their business. You know, looking at the social, the S factor, looking at their environmental and looking at the governance. And I think you can easily do something that ticks a box, but are you actually sustainably, actively, meaningfully engaging in your local community, working with organisations like Red Hen and Form the Future. And I work with businesses to help them think through who might be the good fit for them and how do they make that strategically part of their business goals. This comes back to the whole ESG thing, which is, you know, on the E, we had a lot of greenwashing because people weren't authenticating. They were doing carbon offsetting and et cetera, et cetera. And I think now as, as the focus now moves towards the S and people start to think about their sustainable goals, you know, the UN Sustainability Goals, you know, we're going to end up with social washing as well as we ended up with greenwashing. I already see it. And I, I think, have people yeah. knocking on my door saying, we need to do a volunteering day yeah. for our employees. Can we come? Yeah, Send it um, my way and I'll have a yeah, word. I do. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but but, but we, that's the example. That is, uh, that and, is it, the example. and it's probably coming up to Christmas and they're like, yeah. oh, should do something charitable, shouldn't we? No, it should be embedded yeah. in the so core we, values. We, we are very aware of this at Form the Future in terms of the organisations that come to us. But some of the things that we're seeing are actually incredibly positive. So we run a, a STEM program called Cambridge Launchpad, which which Marshalls and Arm started, um, and TTP. Um, that's that's doing brilliantly. We're doing more project days every year. We're seeing more students engaged. We're starting to see a real variation in the organisations. So that, for example, uh, Cambridge Building Society focusing on the on the math side of things, and actually not only introducing young people to careers in finance. And, and, you know, fintech and that kind of thing, but actually just giving them general, you know, financial awareness skills along the way. So there are some organisations that, that do take it very seriously and are operating in a very authentic way in the long term. And, you know, Cambridge Launchpad is deliberately designed to be a long-term, medium to long-term investment. You can't come in, transact quickly, tick your social box and then leave. You know, it's designed to embrace people over the medium term. But I'm starting to see now a lot of the business parks actually saying, okay, in the same way that we have responsibilities for the design of the buildings and how how the park runs from an environmental perspective, how do we ensure that all our tenants behave in in a socially responsible way? And where does that responsibility lie? Does it lie with us as the business park owner? Or does it lie with each individual tenant? 
And some of the models that are coming through from the States, for example, would suggest that actually often it is the owner of the business park that takes the lead because they realize that actually they cannot operate in a town, in a city, in a county or region, having these large footprints next to communities without understanding the place that they then have within within that community. And then the tenants kind of just go along with everything that that, you know, it's kind of being mandated in some respects. Take the lead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a confession (laughs) in that in my background, I was part of the early, early tech cluster in Cambridge in the the turn of the uh, century. I was working for Autonomy. So Autonomy, the organisation, first internet billionaire, um, valued higher than British Aerospace at some point. So absolutely, the, the tech cluster is in my DNA and I experienced it at its uh, at its birth. And my experience now with the tech cluster being very kindly hosted within the Bradfield Centre on the Science Park is the people that work in the tech cluster in Cambridge are horrified when they learn about the inequality in Cambridge. Most people don't know about it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people come to Cambridge for their jobs and they don't see it. And why would they? It's kind of hidden. Unless you come out of out of the science park and turn the wrong way a couple of times, you will have no idea it exists. And when you tell them, they're absolutely mortified and want to do something about it. And and there are lots of organisations out there, probably coming on to your next question, who, once they find out, um, want to do something. And that's where Rachel's network and skills often comes in, in terms of that matchmaking. So my opinion of the tech sector is really positive. I think it can play a big part, actually, and, and be that leading light and, and show some of the, shall we say, more traditional and long-standing industries in the city the way forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think in defence of the tech sector, right, it is that they don't know. And I, I spent years working on the science park and I would come on the science park and I'd do my job. I actually didn't do any networking. I didn't go out there. I didn't speak to people. I just did the job that I was paid to do. So I think it is the more that we can open people's eyes to this, the more I think we can collectively the, the do a difference. The has released last month its new social mobility report and you can actually now go into the data. So before it was just a paper report, you can now go into the data and Although it's regional-based information, this region has the lowest index of what they call promising prospects. So this is this is basically saying that even though Cambridge has got this fantastic opportunity in terms of growth organisations and new jobs, for the region, mm. it's not that at all. It's, it's completely the opposite. And I wonder whether, as you say, I wonder whether the organisations that are here and either come here or start up out of the university, et cetera, are really aware and whether Cambridge is just this bubble that's just kind of like just gradually inflating. I don't know. The data's there to support the argument and maybe we just need to make more organisations aware of exactly what, what the truth is. We know from a conversation we had in the conference with Innovate Cambridge, one of their three things is actually how do we engage and get back into the community? So we know that Cambridge City Council has launched this social impact fund. There's £1 million there straight away and the plan is to grow it to £10 million in 10 years and then to 100 million. So there's really big aspirations of doing the right thing. So what else is already happening that you can share? 
Well, I'm aware that Cambridge City Council obviously wants to look at reducing inequality in the city and poverty, um, and they have a vision, uh, One Cambridge Fair for All. So they're definitely driving forward that agenda. They also have an anti-poverty strategy. They also advocate for the real living wage in the city as well. And I think they're really trying to drive the conversation around you know, the issues that we see here, you know, we talk about town and gown, don't we? And there's definitely a place for that information to sort of be gathered and and disseminated within all sectors of the city um, so that we all take a responsibility, whether it's the colleges, the university, the business sector, charitable sector, to actually work together to try and address the systemic challenges that we have within the city. But I think organisations like Cambridge 2030 are are getting people together. Uh, Takes a City, I think, are doing some brilliant work around homelessness. I mean, some of those organisations are quite thematic, which is brilliant, but actually there's a bigger conversation. And I think what I find with some of those solutions, which I think are amazing and really driving really great good practice, is that not everybody is represented in the room. And I think there's organisations that need to be in the conversation that aren't there. And I think as a city, if we're to address some of it, like I love the phrase, it takes a city, obviously, particularly the homelessness issue. But we're talking about educational issues. We're talking about food poverty um, with all the other organisations. I'm sure some of the other guys will mention. But I think everybody representing the city needs to be in the conversation. I think there's some people who aren't in the room that need to be in the room. Yeah, I mean, we're working on a, a new project um, this year, which is a government pilot looking at looking at primary schools and starting to think about really helping employers come into primary schools and start challenging stereotypes and start debiasing some of some of the things that go on. I think there is some really interesting work that's being done by some of the organisations that have already been mentioned. I grew up around Oxford, lived around there, worked in Oxford, and there was one organisation called Common Purpose, which was an active way of engaging business leaders with their community. It wasn't a round-the-table, let's see what we can do, and then someone take responsibility for it. It was an active programme that people have to engage in. So managing directors, senior leaders, all get exposed to all the issues of that city. And, and have to do something about it as a programmed activity. I think, you know, we're seeing a lot more of our larger corporate partners starting to engage in conversations around what they can do in specific areas. Um, so taking a much more targeted approach, I think that's a really positive step forward. And we're also seeing, as I've mentioned before, some of the newer organisations in Cambridge joining in programmes that have been set up to enable some of this activity to happen. So I think there's a lot of hope. I think there's a lot of activity going on. Whether there is a kind of like a holistic, coordinated approach is difficult to, to ascertain who takes responsibility for that. You could even say, you know, the Greater Cambridge Partnership fund us on the skills development side. So even they recognise it's a small, tiny part of the budget, but they do recognise that with infrastructural change comes the need for, you know, skills and and knowledge to kind of like adapt to. So I don't think it's all hope is lost. I I just think that there's pockets and, and perhaps, you know, it would be it'd be good to try and find a way of pulling this all together. And I don't know who would ever take responsibility. Maybe I should, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, nominated. Um, I'll come and join you. I'm really, you know, I've only been in Cambridge a couple of years, so it's difficult for me to understand everything that's going on. But for there to be a more, 
holistic approach perhaps is what's required. And for a lot of these pockets of activity to maybe come together and, and, and form some kind of stage for that to, to, that to really be pushed forward and for people to become more aware of it. From my perspective, I would say uh, Cambridge City itself has a absolutely awesome, thriving charitable sector. We have multiple grassroots community-led charities that do awesome things every day mm-hmm. and make a huge impact. They're small and, you know, a lot of us are on our knees. Funding is really tough. I would appeal to corporates to think long-term, think about partnerships and take the time to find a charitable partner, a small charitable partner where your your time, your money will make a big impact, a big impact. It'd be really tempting to just lob a lump of money to a, a third party and manage a grant program, which only lasts a year, which puts us in a really difficult situation financially. I'd say invest, invest you know, t- and the smaller charities like ourselves are if you think about the tech sector you're small sometimes nimble responsive able to act fast and small charities out there are doing exactly that and find your match find an, a, a small organization that is trying to grow join the trustee board you know i'm desperate for trustees that know how to grow an organization and get us through you know those those that investment side there's so many parallels between starting a a tech startup and running a small charity and like, where's your funding going to come from? Where are you going to get the best staff? How are you going to keep the best staff? And there's a lot of alignment. I think when I first moved into the charitable sector, I thought it was all about the big corporates and going to get a charity of the year agreement in the big corporate. But actually um, our biggest success has come come from working with small to medium-sized organisations that are also nimble and responsive and and, want to make a big impact. And it has a a big knock-on effect to your staff because they feel connected. You know, come fund a family worker. I'll let her work with your staff for half a day a week and the rest of the week she can work with families that are you know, on the verge of crisis, that would make your staff feel really good about themselves and about the organisation they work with. So listeners have heard lots of organisational names mentioned. They've heard lots of different challenging areas for the city. Hopefully it's opened some eyes and it might spur people to action. So what should they do? Where do they go first? Maybe Sarah, if you start with that. At the risk of sounding like I'm giving her a plug, get in contact with Rachel. By all means, if you know a local charity, if your staff have come in contact with local small charities, reach out to them direct. But if you don't know them, someone like Rachel does do this matchmaking service and she helped us in the um, the early days of our journey in terms of understanding what you want to achieve and matching you up with an organisation that fits your values, fits fits your style. Like I say, if you, if you don't know any organisations that you're happy to just knock on their door and ask if that doesn't work for you. There is a great route through Rachel. Yeah, and I would say, um, I think we talked a lot about the danger of businesses coming in very short term. And what we're talking about is long term. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about really adding value to the charitable sector as a business. And I think that ties in with building your strategy around how you're going to drive your social value, your social impact, your social responsibility. And that's what I do with businesses. And I have a three-step process that I work with them to really embed it within the culture and the DNA of your business goals. Uh, I think as we've talked about ESG, it's definitely that social factor. And um, 
I love working with businesses across uh, Cambridge, Cambridgeshire and the UK to drive this. And I've seen the massive impact that it's having on businesses, on their employees and also on the community. But I also think um, in addition to that, Form the Future do have a really good set up established way of businesses engaging where they really know how to look at the motivations of what businesses need when they're looking at their social impact, but at the same time building a really mutually beneficial partnership, which is what what we want. And I definitely would advocate for linking with Form the Future as well as a, a great route in to, to quite quickly getting into something whilst you're building your strategy. Thank you, Rachel. That's a free ticket to our conference. Just sold then. That's great. I know. Well, one of the things I think is really important is you are a charitable organisation. You're going to work with businesses. You really need to make sure that you're able to provide back a really good experience for the business. I think that's really, really important, which is why I train charitable organisations on how to meet mutually beneficial partnerships and and add value both sides. So it's very important. If organisations are interested in working with young people and thinking about their future careers and prosperity, then we have a number of programs which you know you can you can start tomorrow. Whether that be coming to work on all our um, careers workshops that we run in schools with using your volunteering hours and become an ambassador for your company, and offer that inspirational opportunity to a young person either in a workshop or running a mock interview, that kind of thing. We also have our bigger programs which which run where you provide project days and experiences for young people to come into your organisation, understand what's going on, see things in in that kind of lived experience way and see the jobs really happening. We've got a big STEM programme called Cambridge Launchpad. We then have our all our other work about enabling young people to take work experience opportunities, summer internships, all those kind of things where you can actually embrace young people Give them a, a decent amount of time in your business and organisation, whether you are large or small. Pay them, hopefully. That would be lovely if you could do that for their time. And then we design bespoke things too. So we help organisations, a bit like Rachel, to kind of like, actually, what are you trying to achieve? What is it that you want to attain within your organisation? And that may be something that actually not only is creating some social value and some social impact, but actually has benefits to your employees too. A really good example of that is what we call our Early Careers Ambassador Programme, whereby we take people that maybe have just finished a graduate entry scheme or maybe in their, their first or their second job, we give them some presentation and communication skills so that they can go and work with young people, mentoring, doing other activities. And what we find is that they come back into their organisations with improved communication skills, improved presentation skills, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of achievement, um, and that just then just pervades throughout your organisation. So it goes both ways. I think another organisation that is worth businesses getting involved with and looking up, you can check them out online, is Cambridge 2030, where there are conversations around getting the public, private and non-profit sector together to try and drive social change in Cambridge. So if you are a business wanting to be in that conversation, I definitely would recommend um, checking them out. That's great. There's so many ideas there for people just to get started um, with that conversation, which is really important. So thank you very much to Rachel, Sarah and Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that was a really thought provoking episode and I hope our regular listeners understand why we felt it was important to stray a little from our usual topics of conversation. We, we kind of had an obligation to, to do this episode based off of the uh, live panel discussion that we did at Cambridge Tech Week. So I'm glad that we've managed to get this one out there. What did you think, Faye? I mean, I thought it was really interesting. You could go into so much detail about 
lots of the things we talked about. Um, I have to say there was one thing Sarah said that really resonated with me because I've been going a different charity each year, but actually that's not their advice. Their advice is really pick a charity and really invest in that charity. But I think it's just another example that as a business owner, it's really hard to choose and to pick. So, you know, I, I, I would definitely advocate one of the last calls to action, which is talk to Rachel, because I have, you know, in the past, and I've, I've gone to a networking with purpose events and they are really, really beneficial. So I thought it was great. Yeah. And, you know, on that point, what are we doing to help at the podcast? Well, we're doing the adverts, aren't we? So from the anniversary episode with Simon Thorpe, we started putting in a charity advert at the end of each episode. Um, so hopefully listeners have been picking up on those and and maybe there's something that will spark interest by running those. So we're happy to take as many people as possible, aren't we? Yeah, and we're also plugging our chosen charity of each week on social media as well, which hopefully gives them a boost. So, yeah, get in touch. We're open for people to contact us at info at cambridgetechpodcast.com. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Cambridge Science Centre provides children and young people with positive community-based STEM experiences to raise aspirations and illuminate STEM careers. We're supported by a collaborative ecosystem of organisations and individuals, and we'd love you to join us. Find out more by contacting me at rebeccaporter at cambridgesciencecentre.org.